John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 472.GE1612, certificate number 49895, Wild Man Fisher. Come on, let's do the taster, when my love was so graceder, when the things of the past were just as good as the rest. Well, I knew a girl, I just know one certain girl uh, Who taught me the taster and it's good as the twister Come on, let's do the taster when my love was so graceder So you're an art collector. We were talking about... Um, I'm, not really an, I'm not really an art collector. I would, I would say that, uh, I mean, I know uh, a few people in our world, in our line of work, and you have, a, you have thoughtfully chosen art throughout your house. I enjoy art. But I don't want to give the idea that I'm a wealthy South American with all these illegally, you know, with, with art theft stuff on my walls. Right. I mean, I mean, whether or not you want to give the impression or not, it doesn't change <laughs> the fact that you are a wealthy South American businessman with a bunch of stolen art on the walls. It's true. But you can see why I wouldn't want it to give the impression. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, there's a lot of reasons. No, no. Impressions matter for sure. <laughs> you never get a second chance to make a first impression with the police, with Interpol. Yeah. Every time I see, uh, every time I go into your house and see all those Renoirs that you, they stole from a vault in Switzerland. Is this the real Mona Lisa <laughs> that went missing from the Louvre in the twenties? But uh, what's your relationship to what would be described as outsider art? Do you do you tend to prefer art that's being made by people within the art community, or are you, do, do things appeal to you that are made by folk artists or traditional, or, or I'm sorry, like acultural artists, people working so, in isolation? I've been thinking about this a lot, kind of in thinking about Wildman Fisher in specific. Which is not a phrase in specific. Uh, in, in specific, in no. particular, I've been I've been thinking about this in specific, and I've been me, thinking about this for a lot of years. <laughs> for a specific. lot of years, in specific, uh, and I guess I do like outsider visual art, like especially when it comes with a story. You know, some guy painting civil war battles in his attic for fifty years, right? Or making collages out of Barbie dolls. Sure, Henry Darger kind of stuff. like to me. The story is fascinating, but I do have a thing where I always want art to be beautiful, mm-hmm. and a lot of outsider visual art is very beautiful. But even when it's sometimes frightening or overwhelming, sure, or uh, eccentric or juvenile or, or whatever it could be, or kind of very naive looking, you know, because they're, maybe they're not trained. Right. You know, the anatomy of the civil war soldiers is not what you'd get from 
uh, some classic book. Classics Illustrated Red Badge of Courage or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like it anyway. But um, And that's an interesting remark or an interesting aesthetic, uh, I guess, side or, or uh, description of taste, right? For, that you want art to be beautiful. I also fall into that camp of wanting art to be beautiful. But there's an entire side of the art world that does not want art to be beautiful, that thinks that art that is that thinks that ugly art is communicating a greater truth or a different truth. Well, there's a problem in that um, a lot of art that is very pretty becomes... Decorative. Yeah, decorative. And becomes mass culture popular, perhaps disproportionate to its merit. So if you're associating pretty art with a Thomas Kincaid painting or a Celine (laughs) Dion record... Uh all of which are, uh, you know, very nice to have in the background, then there becomes a tribal thing where you're like, well, I'm not going to, I can't be one of these guys that likes pretty decorative stuff because that just means you're a a Philistine and a yo-yo and a know-nothing who just wants a pretty Thomas Kincaid cabin on his or her wall. And so taste often becomes, I think Carl Wilson argues this in his book about Celine Dion in particular, that taste just becomes a signifier for tribe. and often prettiness becomes a signifier for ignorance. Right. I, I, I've always found this when I, I went through a phase where I was really into the Austrian culture at the end of the 19th century. Ah, beautiful Viennese yeah, uh, the, architecture. The, and, and culture crafts and everything. And, um, and the contrast between Gustav Klimt and his paintings, which now you see in poster form on a lot of dorm, dorm room walls, right? And and it became a kind of, um, you know, a signifier of a certain kind of cultural, uh, like just enough cultural awareness to have this stuff on the wall. But but it was very much, it, it became very decorative art. And his contemporary, Egon Schiller, who was making art at the same time, which was much more, in contrast, much more grotesque. Now, by modern standards, Egon Schiller's art yeah, is also a, beautiful. Yeah. He's, a, he's a craftsman. <laughs> right. He's but, an esthete. But he... But compared to the Vienna Secession, you know, compared to gold leaf Jugendstil, right. everybody looks a little ugly. And the, so I always thought of those two as kind of in their own time, in their own culture, like opposite sides of, a, of an approach to art. I had that with underground comics where I, somebody like uh, an R. Crumb, where it kind of looked very dirty and sleazy and overly, you know, the whole texture is designed to kind of give you a a little bit of an unwholesome feeling. And I just wanted those clean Archie Comics lines of Jaime Hernandez or something like that, or, you you know, a real, a real esthete, a, a Chris Ware type or something. Right. Super beautiful. And Crumb, of course, became, I mean, Compared to what followed right. in alternative Crumb, comics, Crumb is the Egon Schiele who now looks very um, representational and he's so his his line work is so beautiful compared to uh, like the comics by his wife Arlene, right? Who can who uh, in, in this critic's opinion can barely draw, but our alternative comics like then grew to expand expanded to encompass pretty much anything you could scribble. But I got into Dan Klaus very late, who's one of my favorite cartoonists. And I think I maybe, I maybe saw the movie of Ghost World before I had read the comic. Oh, really? Because the, you know, the, the comics are very off-putting with their kind of David Lynch, kind of grimy, um, and even Charles Burns. And all these people who I now love, um, I had a hard time getting into because 
they were not pretty. Well, and also narratively not pretty, right? <laughs> right. I mean, right. whatever is going on in in uh, Velvet Glove, like a Velvet Glove, like a velvet cast glove, in iron, a cast in iron, like that plot is is a little bit um, surreal and not in an entirely pleasant way. And see me on purpose, you know, yeah. peep show booths and and yeah, and skin, saggy skin theaters skin. and monsters and. And, uh, you know, I don't know when you want to pivot to music, but I feel like music is maybe the art form where I need prettiness and melody above all, you know, like, uh, I have a really hard time with listening to something that's intentionally dissonant or off-putting as a statement because I don't know why. Is it because we so often use music as a background for other things or in a way we don't with film and painting? Well, I mean, the way that your taste manifests is kind of a, I mean, it's an age old question. Like uh, when you're making a piece of art, are you conscious of who you're hoping will be your audience? And when you're buying art, like what are your criteria? What are you going to use this art to do to, to mollify yourself, to work through your tragedy, to just be decorative, like background music as you wash the dishes or, or a painting on the wall that matches your couch, you would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, how much visual art is bought and sold because the colors match people's furniture. I mean, I, I have been guilty of that as well, of just loving a piece but being like, I don't have a place for this. And that doesn't mean it's a slightly different orange than the couch. Right. But it does mean buying art kind of is a... Uh, it's a luxury good, you know, it's a consumerist decor decision much more than it is like, oh, I like this song, but I don't like the next song. Someone, go ahead. I remember somebody, I don't know where this comes from, but somebody once said that um, style is just all the things about your work you cannot change. <laughs> like that's, that's the only thing style is, the stuff you couldn't change if you wanted to. The way you play that lick, the way you draw that kind of an element. Sure. Um, the sound of your voice, right? The sound of your voice. It's especially true in music, I think. And... And that's honestly, you know, for an, on the artist side, not the appreciator side, there's a lot of compulsion when it comes to style and taste. It just comes out of the tap that way. Until the 20th century, art, like high art, music and painting and sculpture and writing were all things that people trained to do. They were, there was technique, there were forms, art evolved, of course, but for the most part, it was representational. Uh, there, there was, there was, te there were technical things you had to master mm -hmm. to be an artist. You it, couldn't just stand in front of a canvas and throw paint at it and be considered a painter. There was folk art. It wasn't really regarded as art though. Commercial art. People would carve a man holding a bottle or a, a chicken on a on a weather vane. Was it more of an activity then, a, a pastime, or was it more of a, a, like a, you know, a craft? This is something for the country people to sell us. I mean, it, it wasn't even really that uh, the country people made it to sell. It was mostly, I mean, you would, you would make your furniture as fancy as you could make it by carving curly cues in it or um, stitch patterns to demonstrate how well you could do embroidery, but those things weren't made to sell. I guess when you make all your own stuff or a lot more of your own stuff, you're an artist many more hours a day, right? right? Than, but, than today when, I mean, obviously a computer programmer is an artist making, of course. making creative decisions in his code, but you know, most of us spend all our days doing things that maybe do not come with the rewards of 
I'm a little bit of an artist when I do this. But, uh, and that is a modern idea of what being an artist is. Um, in the 19th century, someone with a, with a hammer and an awl who was putting some curly cues on things sure. wouldn't have thought of it as art at all. Um, they might have, I feel like they might have got some of the same little rush that comes with doing something beautifully or doing something well. Personally, yeah. Even yeah. if there's no establishment that says "nice chair," but but even I mean the the masons that built all the great cathedrals that that were carving gargoyles, you know, they were doing decorative work, but they wouldn't have called themselves artists. They would have said that they were doing masonry or that this was part of the job of building a church rather than making a gargoyle that you would. Well, that's sad that they were so down on themselves. Well, it's not because they didn't charge very much for their work. And that's why we have all these beautiful buildings from the 19th <laughs> century. If they all thought they were artists, you know, none of that stuff would have been, no one would have been able to budget for it. But as, as the definition of art changed and moved in, into what became the 20th century, the sort of explosion of modernism, the idea that art could start to peel away from representational or, or technology drives a lot of it. Yep. Once, once the camera is invented, why bother um, beautifully rendered versions of nature or the human form? Because photography can do that. What, what can art now do that photography cannot? Right. Art, we start to, to really question, really interrogate what the purpose of art is. If it isn't just to give us a portrait duplicate of, nature, yeah. of someone, duplicate nature, what does it do? We can't uh, stop painting. And so art began to explore uh, initially sort of through impressionistic renderings of things, but then, it, but then very quickly. Very quickly, all kinds of charlatanry. <laughs> all, kinds, all kinds of, of horse uh, baloney that, that deliver us today to a world in which Banksy can shred his own painting and that's all we hear about for a week and a half. Um, I'm, I am stunned that you didn't have an interjection on the Banksy topic. <laughs> I, I, I know you've been chewing on this Banksy painting thing for since it first arrived in the newspaper. Well, I've been thinking about the Banksy thing a lot because I had a similar problem. I mean, I did not buy a piece of street art that shredded itself. Yeah. But I bought a... Too bad. I know. I'd, painting I'd, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> shred it again, Banksy. Shred my wife, shred my kids. <laughs> I bought a piece, I bought a, a painting by an artist who uh, paints on top of vintage prints and frames. And, and kitschy prints and frames, yeah, right? Yeah, in, intentionally kitschy old landscapes and then uh, adds ironic iconography on top of them. I, I love this artist. I hope his work exists in the future. What's the artist? His name is Wayne White. He's actually an Emmy. People know there's a documentary about him. He, he has a bunch of Emmys for being the main designer of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Back and it's, in the day. it's clever art. It really is. It's clever. It's funny. It's, I, I think it's very beautiful. Um, Interesting. But um, the issue with this particular piece is he uses vintage frames. And I guess I didn't know this, but this, the wire that mounted it on my wall was the same crappy mounting that he bought when he bought this at some garage sale in the valley somewhere. What, that's the, that, that's part of the aesthetic is that he can, he, the, the aesthetic is that it might fall off your wall. That he, he, he retained the old, like, yeah, he did not put new mounting stuff on oh, the back. That's wonderful. And the screw stripped because it was just some old cheap pasteboard frame. That's not wonderful. Uh, well, it's not wonderful for me because it fell off the wall and hit my desk and actually damaged the painting. Oh. 
And so today I have to go to FedEx and like mail it back to the artist to be uh, touched up. But it was essentially a Banksy thing, you know? Oh, like this is a poor man's Banksy story. He didn't mean for it to be a prank. Like, ha ha, he's going to get this home and three weeks later it'll fall off his wall because I didn't put a new wire on this. But, uh, but I had my own kind of slow motion version of a Banksy shredding. Well, that is, I mean, Banksy and, and the reclaimed art that you're describing is a those pranksters. They're representative of uh, an evolution of art over the last hundred years that have delivered us to a place now where uh, we're often, even those of us who are pretty deeply embedded in the culture, are always struggling asking ourselves and our friends, like, what is it? What is art, right? It's a, a perennial question. Yeah, things that, things that were off limits like humor and conceptual gimmicks are now front and center because you got to do something. You got to do you, something. You, your art cannot just be a slightly smoother or more individual version of what people were doing 50 years ago that already exists. That's not interesting. But we saw, we saw, um, particularly, I think most publicly in Picasso, uh, an artist that as he, as he tried to evolve away from just strictly representational painting, went and looked at the, what would be, I think described as the folk art of Africa and Asia and took elements of the naivete of that art, because the word naive gets used a lot in this artistic context, uh, and then reincorporated it into his painting style. So that what was so astonishing about that work is it seemed to people at the time to be very primitive. But obviously Picasso was a highly trained artist, not just making craft, um, not making masks to be used in ceremonies, but duplicating that style and making fine art. And that was always a seal of quality. You know, it's okay that this looks kind of crazy that this guy thinks these six lines are a bull or whatever, but it's okay because he could actually draw a photorealistic bull that would knock you out. The fact that he has chosen this makes it okay. Right. And that's not true of a lot of outsider artists. They, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of locked into their weird looking civil war dudes. But it's true that for, for a lot, and even when we were young, people would uh, justify abstract art by saying, oh, the artist is actually really good. They could do good art. He could be a commercial artist. This yeah. guy could draw, you know, could paint illustration for Collier's magazine. Sure, but instead they chose to do this crazy thing, these soup cans or whatever. Um, and that made it okay. That made it okay, right? That validated the uh, abstract impressionism of it. And that's probably gone. Not every abstract or conceptual artist today goes through an amazing phase of becoming a super skilled technician first. Yeah, they don't have to justify it in part because most artists now could not draw a, <laughs> a horse. Speaking of Dan Klaus, he has a lot of, uh, you know, his movie Art School Confidential is kind of about the charlatanry of, of the art scene today. I think he thinks it would be more valid if everybody could draw a horse. And it's, it's true in all the arts, right? I mean, it, it, there, it's very little is required for you to be a musician now in that you can record at home and put your musical thoughts on tape. You Garage can, band. Sure, bang a table and, and, uh, and read your poetry. But also you don't have to be a good writer to make a living as a, as a blogger. You don't have to be a journalist at all to make a living as a journalist. The, Technology has allowed us to explode professionalism and training. And really, if you can just get in front of people and put on a show, you can attract an audience and call yourself a professional anything you want. It was much harder to get past the gatekeepers before. And I usually, I usually portray that as a positive. You know, there's sure. so many ways to get an audience today. A lot of people, a lot of people do uh, see that as a, 
an evolution, a strength of the modern era. And I guess you get into taste questions again, but you know, what if there's some writer whose prose is just awful, but you know, Fifty Shades of Grey sells 500 million copies because they found a niche. Sure, they tap into something. But really, what's the downside? Those, those people were not going to be reading Bleak House or Middlemarch or Gravity's Rainbow, and then they suddenly found something awful that read smoother, so they read that instead. I mean, I think you could make an argument that there are probably great works of art that go undiscovered now. For sure. And also, I think there are probably a lot of, we, we talked about this, we talked about this in the Raymond Carver, Gordon Lish episode, where the attention paid to the work of Raymond Carver and the, you know, the, the time and money and effort that Gordon Lish felt he could put into editing the work of Raymond Carver produced a great work that now that relationship doesn't exist because there isn't, there aren't gatekeepers in the same way. That right? whole, so, that whole layer of, of polish doesn't right. exist. We don't find music like, um, we don't find the AOR songwriting of the 1970s anymore because there just isn't that time and money and focus on making everything perfect. It's just like, I wrote a song, I put it out tomorrow. So there are good, there's good and bad, right? To the democratization of art. And is music really an area where um, some untrained person can, uh, can bang on a table and say, this is my art? Well, it is. So, Toward the middle of the 20th century, there was an artist by the name of Jean Dubuffet who created a term called art brut, which basically meant raw art. And he was using this... Uh, Untroubled by typical considerations of what's actually good and skilled and well, no, craft? It, it was, it, it, he was describing art that was made in, in uh, motivated by what you uh, talked about earlier, which was motivated by something internal in the artist where they were unconscious of art fashion. They were unconscious uh, even of an audience. They were motivated by feelings and often by mental illness uh, to create art that often went undiscovered during the artist's lifetime, art that was um, maybe not exactly representational of, of the world, but rather representational of the artist's inner world. As art like this started to be discovered, and recognized as art rather than just the, a madman's scribblings, artists started to... Pretend to be scribbling madmen. Well, that, so... and uh, <laughs> to, they, to, get, to get a gallery open. They did, but also they started to recognize this as art because there was a new idea of what art was, which was not just the technical work of a master uh, draftsperson, but rather an expression of an emotional truth, expression of a, a, an inner reality. Sincerity is more important than the craft. Right. Or sincerity is more authentic than the craft. Yeah. And the word authentic became a very troubling word throughout the, um, throughout the late 20th century because it started to be imposed as its own sort of form of gatekeeping. What we started to think of as corny art, which was ultimately broad brush applied to anything that was beautiful. Um, authentic music in particular had to be rough, poorly recorded, atonal, uh, bad singing in order for it to be really taken seriously as. What are you thinking of? Are you thinking, is this some, are you thinking of like, uh, uh, 
avant-garde uh, classical music? Or are you thinking of punk? Or? No, this went all the way into pop music. So if you think about, for instance, um, well, I mean, just the comparison between Nirvana and and the music that it displaced. Or um, if you think about rock and roll, the comparison between the Stones and the Beatles. Uh, as As the 20th century progressed, we were looking for authenticity in certain parts of the culture, what was thought of as avant-garde culture or rock and roll culture or intellectual culture started to privilege things that were closer to the source. So people in the 60s, 70s, and 80s went back to the recordings of Robert Johnson, went back to the earliest, rawest forms of blues and bluegrass and found that music more real. And the more you tried to dress it up, the more you were complicit in a disenfranchisement of it and ultimately like it, you were committing an art crime to make things that and coincident not coincidentally it's easier to play right i mean easier to play punk, punk songs and have fewer chords easier to play and also lower you know, buried entry potentially a lot easier to understand hmm. i mean you can comment you can seem to be a lot more knowledgeable about music that's like dun 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 dun, dun that's made by somebody that doesn't know how to play the guitar then you can talk about jazz fugues there's a certain kind of like very hard to listen to uh pop music for me that i associate with like i know we're going to get into this captain beefheart and, and zappa in the 60s where it does not seem to me super easy to understand or critique or write about but it is also very kind of goofy and raw raw right um but also i feel like i understand it less than some soppy ballad from the same time well, that era that you're describing is really, is really the beginning of what became outsider music. Zappa, in particular, saw himself as a curator of music that you weren't going to be able to find other places. And Captain Beefheart was initially sort of a Zappa um, protege, discovery, yeah. a protege. Zappa really heard in untrained musicians or in trained musicians who were who were working really outside of normal forms, he saw a kind of truth that he felt was, that he felt was going to be transformative within the world. And he, he made that his special goal. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout now zappa was an incredibly trained musician right he was a he's a, picasso he could have he was. He could, he could have, have sung about the bowl. Sure, he could have played uh, just standard rock and roll blues and have been considered a great lead guitar player. But he 
took his music in a different direction. And yeah, a lot of his lyrics are scatological and not what you would like play at, at dinner. Again, it's R. Crumb and Dan Klaus. Right. But his guitar playing and his, I mean, he, his band produced a lot of great musicians that went on to be in other bands and, and, um, changed the face of 20th century music. But Zappa, as part of this late sixties culture, uh, found the hero of our story, discovered the hero of our story, Wild Man Fisher who was at the time in the late sixties, a guy that we would, I think any time prior to 1968 and in, in most ways, even today <laughs> would regard as someone who was standing on the street corner in Santa Monica screaming. My name is Larry. I have a grandfather. His name is grandpa. Hi grandpa. Remember grandpa when I used to go over to the house? And you wouldn't let me go into the uh, kitchen with the rest of the family? Oh, listen, Larry, you be a nice boy and stay away from us. When we want you to come over, I'll get a hold of your mother and I'll call her up and you can come over, okay? My name is Larry. Um, Wild Man Fisher was a, a Californian who grew up in a broken home. His father died and, and um, his mother was trying to raise four kids and did a what, by all accounts, a pretty good job of raising three of them, but her, her son, um, well, I mean, if you have a son with paranoid schizophrenia or whatever it is, I mean, you can be mom of the year and you know, mental illness is just mental illness, right? Well, that's the thing. Uh, he was, we, we only have his, his story to go on and his family's like alternative story, but, um, Lawrence Fisher, Larry, um, he wasn't, uh, he, he, not a lot of Larry's in rock. I guess you two has a Larry in it. Yeah, that's right. Larry Mullen. Um, as an adult, he described his childhood as violent and unloving, hmm. although his siblings contest that that wasn't the case. But even before his paranoid schizophrenia came online by, by many reports, he was, he didn't have a lot of friends as a kid. He was a, a child that began to sing to comfort himself, just sort of walk around making up songs as he walked through the house. Most of the time, schizophrenia doesn't come. Yeah, it's in your 20s, it, right? It comes in in your late teens or 20s. But even when Larry Fisher was a little boy, he sang to himself almost uh, uh, obsessively such that, you know, his mom and his siblings sort of found themselves in a position where they were like, please, Larry, just stop singing, like knock it off. I guess that's something you could depict as, uh, I mean, a lot of kids do that and outgrow it right. once they realize the world does not want uh, somebody making up weird little songs all the time. Um, and he was trying to interpret his world by just singing about it as it went down, right? Singing out loud mm -hmm. um, and singing somewhat atonally. Like uh, it's not that little, little Larry Fisher was a beautiful singer either. He just sort of did a, a sort of scat version where his voice kind of broke in falsetto quite a bit, like scream singing. It's authentic. He's being himself. He was being himself. He was estranged from his family pretty young mm. and um, he was kicked out of high school because he wouldn't stop singing in class. Um, he, he went to Fairfax high school in California and was expelled eventually because he, he was disruptive. So even before his, uh, schizophrenia came online, 
he was already a unique individual singing, uh, beyond just what, I mean, singing like a child would even into his teenage years. That seems like it's, yeah, even before his mental illness diagnosed, that seems like it's a symptom of what's going on on the inside. You know, he's not just an otherwise normal kid who also likes to, thinks it's okay to sing out loud in school. I mean, he's not super well adjusted if no, he not only enjoys it, but can't stop. Right. He was singing like in like full throated, uh, singing Paul Anka songs in his <laughs> high school. Uh, but he started to experience hallucinations. He started to be violent. He was a big kid. Um, and he started to threaten his mother and his siblings. And eventually he attacked his mother with a knife and mm. was committed to a mental hospital, diagnosed as a schizophrenic and a manic depressive and treated as best they could at the time and released. At which point he was homeless His family didn't want him back. Um, So he started to, this is in the mid sixties, he started to stand on street corners and sing, sing for a nickel, sing for a dime. He would say, do you want to, you know, do you want to hear an original song for a dime? I'll sing you an original song and passersby are just on the street corner, probably um, trying to decide whether or not to wear a fedora anymore, whether that was the fashion or not. And here's this guy with kind of unkempt hair, you know, do you want to hear an original song? And if they gave him a dime, he would just start making up a song right then and there. It's not the traditional busking setup where you walk by and if you like it, you throw a coin. He he wants to enter into a, a transaction with you first. He'll make a song for you right now if you give him a dime. And he would sing a song uh, about, deal. about them. He wasn't lying. I think probably a lot of those people were like, oh, he's going to sing me a composition of his. But his songs were often like, I'm here and you are here. It's sunny outside and you have a tie on. Blah. Um, well, you take inspiration from the world around you, like, right. like all the greats. That's right, like, like all the great raw artists. But at one point he was uh, in the process of doing this, he, and, and he was convinced as a young person that he was a great singer and had a future in the music business. He was discovered at one point by Solomon Burke, uh, one of the great, the great R&B singers of the mid-60s, who said, you know, This guy has got a weird thing, like a crazy thing that feels, there's an aspect of what he does that does feel sort of religiously inspired. Like he is a, he has the mania of a kind of, uh, that seems almost prophetic because he's singing so unaffected by shame or, or taste or sense of, of place. Like he is, um, his expression felt very pure. It's ecstatic. Ecstatic is right. And so Solomon Burke actually took him on tour and, and, uh, he was the, Solomon Burke was the one that coined the nickname wild man for him. And he had him open, uh, some shows just up improvising songs and singing little songs, little 30 second and one minute long songs that he'd composed over the, over the years about the sun coming up and, I guess it's like, is it the gospel music influence on rock where it privileges that kind of a live performer who just gets into that kind of ecstatic state? I mean, you don't really see that in a lot of other music traditions, but in the early days of rock, you know, it's full of performers like Little Richard or or Jerry Lee Lewis. So, you know, somebody who really does just get carried away in whatever crazy thing is in their own head. Well, it's really connected to speaking in tongues and the, the evangelical tradition of, yeah. 
I think it comes through the black church is my guess yeah. is, is how we see it in early rock. And that's certainly like how, probably how Solomon Burke recognized him as something that was, you know, this is mid sixties. So not quite into the time where you were just picking freaky people up and, you know, putting them out gong show style. A wavy gravy yeah. era is not yet started. And so, you know, that was kind of his, the first taste that Wildman Fisher had of, of performing in front of big audiences. But uh, his, his tours with Solomon Burke came to an end, largely because his paranoia and schizophrenia made him very difficult to deal with. And he was back in Hollywood, standing on a street corner, singing made-up songs to passers-by. Now, he didn't play an instrument either, so he was, this was all acapella. acapella. <laughs> uh, but at this point, he was discovered by Frank Zappa. Perfect. And in 1967, this character of a man with wild hair who had one shoe on and one bare foot, who seemed like his eyes were giant oscillating spirals, who was singing the purest form of human scream singing you could imagine, really comported with a, with a late 60s idea of this raw, freedom, yeah. the raw freedom that was now possible. And also part of a culture that believed that we were all artists. If only we could throw off the shackles right. of, of conformity and, uh, the man, the man, capitalism, all, and religion, all these things that had kept us inhibited. And so this lack of inhibition felt very real, very raw, very contemporary, and also Again, ecstatic, like maybe we all had access. I'm uncomfortable with it. And here's why. It's because I know that it's not a put on. Like the authenticity of it is a problem for me. Because I know that when I'm seeing, you know, what I'm seeing and what I'm getting a little fun, novel thrill out of as I go through my comfortable neurotypical life is some guy who does not have that, you know? Like, why is his inner turmoil, why is it okay for his inner turmoil to become a little fun sideshow for me. It feels a little like a freak show or a, a minstrelsy or something. I don't, I don't know. Well, you're onto something and it's not just the freak show aspect of it, but there's a, there's been a long history in the late 19th century and 20th century of people going, actually going to mental hospitals to, and this is, I'm not talking about like people throwing chicken heads into a pit, but like intellectual cultured people going to mental hospitals to stand and look at people who were in catatonic states or uh, hallucinatory states, mm -hmm. uh, ostensibly to observe and report. But really it was a kind of voyeuristic right. experience. And throughout the art world and the, the history of religion, there's this blurry line between people who are potentially creating from a place of great distress and from a state of, of true like mental illness and delusion and people who are maybe managing those states a little bit better and are able to create art uh, motivated or, or inspired by that, that illness, but are still able to keep it together. That's what you want. I feel like this guy's in touch with these demons but somehow he's doing okay. Yeah. I don't have to feel guilty. Like Van Gogh sure. is an example of someone who, I mean, if you look at Van Gogh's life, 
a pretty miserable life, but he created this work that you know, we now treasure. After they're dead, it's very different. It's very different. You don't have to worry like, who, where's my money going? Who's, who's actually caring for this guy? There's, uh, there's a lot of questions. There are, and there are a lot of questions now. And we're, we're, especially in our present era, going through a period where we're having to review art made by artists who later are revealed to have been personal monsters, right? I mean, it's, it's difficult now to know exactly whether or not you can watch The Cosby Show or the early films of Woody Allen or enjoy Louie. There's a reason why it often comes up in comedy. You know, a beautiful song or a, beautiful, you know, a beautifully composed Polanski shot, maybe you can separate from their behavior. But a comedian is telling you about his life. The illusion is that he's just talking to, you're hearing about Bill Cosby's childhood or Woody Allen's dating woes. And once you know that, uh, you know. There's another that, side. Yeah, that's not a person you would want to hang out with. Um, yeah, that very intimacy is what submarines it. Yeah, and you're, you're right that, the, that, that recorded music or paintings, um, we do separate them, are it's, able it's to. It's easier at least, whether it's yeah. morally right, ethically defensible is a different question, but it's easier at least. Well, so in the case of Wild Man Fisher, who is young and not unhandsome, big, and, and in some ways like the archetype of the inspired hippie. He's magnetic. Uh, Zappa says, this guy's got it and sets about to make an album with him. Uh, and he produced a double album in 1968 called An Evening with Wild Man Fisher, which came out and got a great review in Rolling Stone. Um, it connected with people at the time. And to listen to it, you know, Zappa is providing a musical background, a musical backdrop mm -hmm. to, to Larry Fisher's like naive, toneless yelling. Uh, yeah. Naive, toneless yelling. Uh, and you find that in fact, with, with a musical backdrop, Larry Fisher's songs do, they do lend themselves to being supported by instrumental music. Now that's a problem I have with, um, with the kind of mentally ill, nineties uh, musician, Daniel Johnston, yeah. whereby I actually love covers of his work which are, you know, the songwriting is set with a little more craft and, you know, better arrangements. And I'll listen to those all day, but, I, you know, I can't, him actually singing them is a bit much. And, and it's something I, I think that's true for us as listeners. If you put really great music as a backdrop to two people having a, a violent argument at a bus stop, you'll find that there, there are often rhythms to people's patter. There are, I mean, and this isn't to say that Larry Fisher's music didn't have rhythm or that he didn't, because he did, and he did have melody as well. But the music of Frank Zappa made it feel more organized. Is he a talented songwriter was. to you? You're, you, you know, as a skilled singer-songwriter, when I watch clips of Wild Man Fisher, I wonder, is this good or is this a gag? I mean... It's neither good nor a gag. I mean, he's, he is truly inspired uh, to express himself in a, in a loud fashion, but he's not a gifted musician. He's, his songs aren't, I mean, they're, they're not more sophisticated or developed than you would hear from a seven-year-old that you said, like, write a song right now about, about what's going on the seven-year-old would pull the same things down from the air. Now there, because Larry Fisher was also very troubled, you know, the, the, 
he was never super explicit about hearing voices telling him to do bad things, mm-hmm. but he had extreme paranoia and a feeling that he was being stalked, that people were trying to kill him. Uh, he talks about his mother trying to kill him. And then when you hear from his siblings, they're like, actually, Larry came out with a knife and tried to kill our mom and we barely got her away. You know, like he does not have a a clear eyed view of his own behavior or of his place in the world. And he's desperately mentally ill and untreated during this period. So his expression is, is extremely raw, but it's a, it is a howl, uh, you know, an agonizing howl. It's just that in the context of this time, the art culture that believes that the raw and closer to the, to the bone, the expression is the truer it is. Uh, in my impression, not intentionally, not knowingly exploited uh, Larry Fisher, but was complicit in an exploitation of him. Zappa, I don't think, had bad intentions. Zappa was looking for... It's easy to say this is the best thing for this guy. Yeah, right. And and if you're Larry Fisher, who believes that he's a great singer and wants to be a great rock star, putting out an album with Frank Zappa was the fulfillment of a dream. And, and because of his connection to Zappa, he got on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, where he performed his tune with... Um, was he treated like a joke? Because sometimes that guy singing Merry-Go-Round, for example, can kind of seem like a gag. Uh, well, so Rowan and Martin were... Part of their act was to... I mean, they were hippie, hipster adjacent, but they also made an awful lot of fun of the culture as they were, they, they both celebrated it and, and sat on it. So. Yeah. Laughing was not SNL that had, um, straight musical guests twice a show, right? No, they would have novelty guests on. And during wild man Fisher's performance, Dick Martin actually stayed on the stage and kind of hovered over him with maybe a, the sort of predictable, like facial reactions. What is, he's doing takes. What yeah. Is just this? like, Whoa. Okay. Well, all right. Like he's trying to clap along. He's trying to make it a joke. They did this to another, um, Rowan and Martin actually had another raw artist on called the legendary stardust cowboy who appeared on their show playing his own, like completely schizophrenic music. Um, he played a song of his called paralyzed where he basically just howls and yodels over some drumming. Uh, and the cast of laugh in joined him on stage and started dancing and yelping and yodeling along with him. And it freaked him out. And you see him like stomp off the stage in frustrated agony as laughing that the, the rest of the cast continues to dance and wow. they don't even notice he's gone uh, because they were, <laughs> I think that's the definition of exploitation. It was pretty if you rough. don't notice the mentally ill guy is gone. It's pretty rough. Isn't it weird that this is all on laughing, which has not aged particularly well and kind of seems like more of a corporate co-opting of youth culture than actual. It's weird to think of avant-garde art being on laughing at all to me. Well, considering that Nixon was on laughing, <laughs> right? that's, that's laughing's great gift. Well, hard to, at the time, it probably seemed really easy to separate um, the monkeys from the Rolling Stones, although now so much of 60s culture has blurred into this weird, this weird, weird pastiche. Yeah. Like during this period, Wild Man Fisher was, I'm sure, played on the, the record players of a lot of people that thought they were, they were listening to the real straight dope. Um, Wild Man Fisher ended up going out and opening for some really big bands at the time, 
the birds and uh, played some big festivals. Can you imagine going to see the birds and then this guy comes out? This guy and, comes out first. But he's he's such a he's such a wild sort of hippie, just like screaming at the top of his lungs. Maybe he was great live. Yeah. And with, yeah, with a, he's he's inspired. He has the he has the energy of a preacher. He has a sense of humor. Um, with a little bit of a drum beat behind him, I think he was a, a pretty compelling performer. But he was mentally ill, and and eventually he threw a bottle at Frank Zappa, and it narrowly missed hitting his infant daughter Moon Unit. Not Moon Unit. And so Frank severed all relationship with him because he felt like he was unsafe in the presence of Larry Fisher. And after releasing this double album, which didn't sell well, uh, Wildman Fisher was back on the streets and through much of the seventies, much of the, the mid seventies was, uh, again, just sort of standing on a street corner, uh, on Sunset Boulevard. Just like he was before. Singing for a dime. I don't uh, want to defend throwing bottles at Munyan and Zappa, but I feel like Captain Beefheart has similar stories about Zappa, about being kind of abandoned by him after you know, the one album didn't turn out well. I mean, I think it's the, it's the danger of going into relationships with people where you feel like, you know, you're a raw artist and I'm the visionary that recognizes you and let me bring you into the world. And then you realize, oh, this person needs a lot of support. They need a network of people. They need money and care. And I saw myself as, yeah, this is a side project for me. Yeah. I'm like the visionary that tapped you for greatness. And now it's on you. It's up to you to, to solve your problems. Like Zappa, Zappa exited stage left. And as we'll see, I mean, the story of Wildman Fisher is that no one was able really to help him in the mid seventies. He, um, again, was sort of playing out, out on the street and the record store Rhino records, which was a, an LA record store that had a kind of quirky, and not a label, right? Culture, not a label. Yet. It was a it was a record store, and they had the idea that they were going to start releasing weird comedy records um, and, and lost classics. You know, their initial idea was, oh, there are all these these funny songs and forty fives that have been lost to time. We're going to start pressing those because they had a very quirky record store, and they asked they asked Larry Fisher if he would record a song as the theme music to their record store. <laughs> and Larry uh, wrote a song called Go To Rhino Records, where he, you know, and it's, it's actually not too bad of a tune, um, if you like scream singing. Go to Rhino Records on Westwood Boulevard. Go to Rhino Records on Westwood Boulevard. They have nice people there. They'll show you where the records are. Where are the records? They're over there. They're all over the place. Go to Rhino Records. And that was the first record ever on the Rhino Records label. Go to Rhino really? Records by Wildman Fisher. So without Wildman Fisher, we might not have had... Because Rhino was very big to me in the 90s. You know, I'd buy their DVDs of old weird TV shows. You know, I think they put out the Mystery Science Theater 3000 DVDs. Mm-hmm. And I loved their compilations of... Um, I had a bunch of... 80s, 70s and 80s power pop mm-hmm. compilations by Rhino, which I'm sure is where I first heard uh, Starry Eyes by the records. And, that, uh, you know, these are places that are gone by Tommy King, like all these great songs that I'd never heard before. 
Um, Rhino Records meant a lot to me. And in the 70s, they were, a, a lot of the records they put out were curated by Dr. Demento. Like they, oh, really? They were right at, the, right at the hub of the Dr. Demento, Weird Al Yankovic. Novelty meets counterculture. Novelty comedy meets counterculture music. And Go To Rhino Records by Wildman Fisher came out as a single that actually sold it was a popular enough song that it funded Rhino Records. It inspired them to believe they could put out albums. I can't believe more record stores don't do that. And in fact, it went up the charts and was on John Peel's end of year best track. It was like number 41 really? in John Peel's favorite tracks of the year. <laughs> Go to Rhino Records by Wildman Fisher. Is, so, that, is that a kind of tribalism? Is that like, uh, yeah, this is an important part of the LA music scene. I assume it can't be that great a jingle. It's a, again, a raw vision style track. And when it comes to like comedy art songs, there are. It's a different standard. It's a different standard. Yeah. And again, this is now during the era where we've lost the rawness of the sixties. We're into the stadium rock of the late seventies. And punk is boiling up out of the, out of the ground and Wildman Fisher's rawness again felt authentic and real to people. It was something that was a, uh, it felt like a human reaction to jazz or to, uh, to Steely Dan. It's still hard for me to think of it as in like aesthetic terms when it's just the same for him. It's the same schizophrenia that it was. 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's back in style. But I think for people that were hearing those first punk singles, they probably felt the same way about that music. Yeah. I mean, it was very hard to listen to the Ramones and not feel like it was just some very, very simplistic, uh, like garbage music. Or even a gag. Like or it, a gag. It kind of, like it's, like listening to the early Ramones records today, there is some kind of overlap with, kind of naive novelty music of the time, you know? Well, in the All the kids want to sniff some glue is, is not that different than <laughs> right. fish heads. And the Sex Pistols really played up that idea that they were... Sure. That they were terrible and this was all a joke. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Funny that you mentioned Fish Heads. The song Fish Heads was by a musical duo called Barnes and Barnes, who were two sort of high school kids that put together this they, they made joke songs at home on their tape recorder. And at some point, someone encouraged them to send a tape of a couple of their songs done a little bit better to Dr. Demento. One of those songs was Fish Heads, which became the most popular song 
the most requested song on, in the history of the Dr. Demento program, and one that influenced a lot of people subsequently. And I think if you haven't heard it, you'll recognize it. It just goes, fish heads, fish heads, roly-poly fish heads. You hear it once and you will hear it for the rest fish of your heads, life, basically. Fish heads, eat them up, yum. Fish heads, fish heads, roly-poly fish heads, fish heads, fish heads, eat them up, yum. Ask a fish head anything you want to. They won't answer. They can't talk. And it was, this was during a period of Devo, a period of the Church of the Subgenius, um, the beginnings of They Might Be Giants, that music that was, that felt very like angular and again, a, a form of... It's clever. It might be a put on. It might be a put on. It's a critique, but also it, it stands on its own. Well, you know who the Barnes and, one of the Barnes and Barnes kids was, and I think I did not know this, is it's a little uh, Billy Moomy from... Lost in Space on the Twilight Zone. That's right. It's the Wish Away to the Cornfield kid. Yeah. So Billy Moomy, after his acting career, uh, his child acting career went away, he started this this project with his friend, Robert. I wonder if the the Fish Heads checks or the Lost in Space checks are bigger these days, that old Casa Moomy. Yeah, that's a good question. But Barnes and Barnes decided that they were going to partner up with Wild Man Fisher and produce a second album. What happened when his relationship with Zappa broke down is Zappa retained the copyright to that initial An Evening with Wild Man Fisher record and refused to surrender the copyright or allow the record to be repressed. I see. So uh, Larry entered into a relationship with Barnes and & Barnes, and they produced two records, two full-length albums of Wild Man Fisher music for Rhino Records. Here's a format where this kind of thing does not always shine. Uh, LP length. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, Wildman Fisher will make the songs. You just have to be there putting some drum beats on it. I guess um, I'm thinking of the listener. Like, I, I love fish heads, but I don't want to listen to 48 minutes of that kind of composition, I think. And that was the problem with these records, where the Zappa record probably sold less than 20,000 copies. His 1981 record, Pronounced Normal, probably sold half that. And then 1984's Nothing Scary sold half that again. I like how he's, he's saying nothing scary. Nothing. Well, so they called the record nothing scary because when, uh, when Larry heard the album pronounced normal, he felt like their contributions, um, to his music were scary that they, that he listened to his own songs and heard things that he had a paranoid reaction to or a oh, schizophrenic there's reaction something to. Something spooky to him about. Well, there were, there were subliminal messages that they had put in his music that were talking about how they were coming to castrate him. Well, he probably saw the Wish You Away to the Cornfield Twilight Zone. He doesn't trust Billy Moomy. Well, it's hard to know. Well, and people are obviously, like any musician knows, that your record company is trying to castrate you. <laughs> right. Uh, I just assume that. Just in this case, they actually put it in the music. At one point, he recorded a duet with Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> Uh, because Why? because Barnes and Barnes had a relationship with Rosemary Clooney, and I guess that's the joke. And figured out that uh, oh, she had heard his music and appreciated it. Oh, really? It's not just um, here's an old timey person who's who will agree to do this. No, but she, she they, in fact, they tried to dissuade her from, it and she said, "No, it's fine. I'm I'm sure it'll be fun, and we'll do a good job." This is for people who saw the David Bowie Bing Crosby Christmas thing and were like, "Nope." We got to amp up both ends. Like, I'm not going to be happy till this is like Johnny 
Tony Rotten and Peggy Lee. The song that they did is called It's a Hard Business, which is a, a song about the music business, and they both complain about... Ah, it's one thing all artists of all genres share. That's right. They hate the record companies. About how bad it is. It's a hard business. It's tough to make it to the top. It's a hard business. Especially when your record club agents and critics, managers and slime. You make them a million. They'll toss you a dime. Uh, but again, that relationship eventually fell apart in part because uh, because Larry Fisher's mental illness sort of precluded him I being able to. He didn't to throw a glass at a young George Clooney. That would break my heart. No. Okay, thank goodness. No, at least at least it's not in the it's not in the historic record. <laughs> but he was back living on the streets and it was It's almost sadder, you know? Like we're surrounded by people who are dealing with the worst kinds of poverty and you just as a coping situation, you just go about your life and try to do the right thing when demanded. But it's it's very sad when you imagine someone who, you know, gets periodic tastes of legitimacy and even success and artistic expression, and then is just back on the street corner. Well, and in particular, there, there comes a time when you have to feel that the people who are interacting with him are conscious of, they're not exploiting him for financial gain because none of these records are selling any money, but there, there is a strange, um, He's giving them something. He's giving them something. And the fact is that he, the Wild Man Fisher's music is not enjoyable or good. But there, uh, there was a documentary film made about him where Mark Mothersbaugh and From Barnes and Barnes and Dr. Demento and Weird Al all appear and all talk about him in these hagiographic terms. What a character. Well, not just that, but like what a genius. Huh. Uh, the last true visionary the last untapped um, musical spirit, a pure musician. I don't know. I'm just skeptical because if you use visionary as synonym for, you know, any kind of crippling mental illness, then nobody would choose visionary, you know? Well, and what's strange is that, uh, that watching him perform, it's very hard to distinguish his, his tics and mannerisms and performance from someone who's having a, a, a very painful episode and living a very painful a life un, with untreated mental illness. Right. But this culture, this time and place of the quirky album, the funny fish head song, the acceptance of art brute as a guiding principle, the, the distinction between what is real and what is fake and commercialized. I mean, it's, it, it was, it was behind the popularization of, as you said, Daniel Johnston. Um, there, uh, in my own era of indie rock, there were musicians that kind of, I won't say put on this, but Bonnie Prince Billy or Cat Power, who were musicians who in their publicity claimed to want to be anything but on stage, want to do anything but, but be participant in the culture, but somehow still managed to, to tour, tour and uh, do photo shoots for magazines here, and yeah. stuff. So there was always this struggle because a lot of their fans uh, treasured them because they seemed authentic. And maybe like me, like, like 
that sounds like me. I have those, I grapple with those issues too. I have that kind of anxiety too. Yeah. I'm anxious and so forth. And I mean, you, we, we watched it in the, in the early, um, interviews with Kurt Cobain, where people would ask him about his lyrics and he would say, Oh, I just made him up on the spot. Like it was, it was hard within punk rock culture to acknowledge that you had even worked hard on a thing. You wanted to be working from a place of, of mental, of a kind of mental inspiration that felt outside of you where you didn't work or try. You were just inspired by the lightning of your, maybe the voices you were hearing or your childhood trauma. I did 30, I did 30 drafts. <laughs> it seems a little less. I mean, I admire that. That's what I want to hear. When I hear somebody be like, yeah, I'm a writer. I just cut open my wrists and the words come out. I'm like, screw you. Right. Maybe it's just because I'm jealous. Well, and when Kurt Cobain died and his journals were revealed and you saw that he'd been working on those lyrics yeah. and done multiple drafts and he'd worked really hard on all his music. Obviously he had. But but he But will- why not lie? Because then people are like, wow, these think how much better they could have been if this guy had been trying. You really get more genius points if you're, if you're, if your works of genius seem like they're not your best. And, and, and that, that very complicated culture continued to orbit around Larry Fisher. People continued to try to work with him, including the makers of this documentary film about Larry called Derailroaded, uh, where the filmmakers spent many years sort of trying to interact with him to make a film about him. And it's excruciating to watch, not just watching Larry in pain, but watching these musicians that we love and respect try to talk about his work and minimizing his mental illness as much as they can, in, in a way minimizing their complicity in, in it because they're just like, oh, Larry, he's really inspired. You know, he had his problems. It was always hard to, to send him a check because... We never knew where he was going to be living and, you know, cut to Larry who's standing on a park bench, you know, with his uh, hair hair in dreadlocks. I assume these people would say, well, what was, you know, what's the alternative? You know, this guy's always going to have these demons, you know, Uh, you know, at least we tried to reach out and work with them and find him an audience and. Yeah, I think they would say that. And it's a, a, it's a valid, a valid question to ask. What's the alternative? When you, when you think of like, well, every human life is its own thing. Um. When, when they tried to medicate Larry, like a lot of schizophrenics, he didn't like being medicated because it took away his, the inspiration of his mania. Um, he preferred to be left alone. And I mean, a lot of schizophrenics don't want to take their medication. And it's, even though the medication stabilizes them, it grays out their life in a way they'd prefer to, or they think they would prefer. I hope this is not too personal, but as somebody who, you know, has works in an artistic field and has had to deal with periods of mania. I mean, do you find there's a correspondence where do you feel like your gift or your output is dulled by trying to treat, you know, mania and depression or? It's a common fear in treating mental illness that you're going to lose what's best about yourself. Mm. Right. And, um, and it was one of the things throughout my twenties and thirties that caused me to be very suspicious of, taking uh, lithium or depression treating medication that I was going to lose my inspiration. And I think within artist culture, that's a thing we tell each other, right? Oh, you know, be careful of, of treating your 
mental illness because, you know, you're going to... That's not a good peer group. You're all telling each other not to medicate. Well, what, what what's true, though, is that it's a thing that young artists tell one another. Mm. But it's, young artists also say that their alcoholism is key <laughs> right. to their productivity or their heroin addiction, right? Young artists are trying to make sense of what's motivating them, and they're trying to cope with their pain however they can. Well, also, it's, it's, it's convenient that it always excuses the current behavior. Right. It's, it's never like anything I would have to change to do. Like, it's never like, I really think I should travel more and be nicer to people. That's what's key to my art. <laughs> <laughs> so. And personally, I find that heroin and heroin addiction is not what created the great rock and roll of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Plenty it, of counterexamples. It's pretty much just like correlation does not prove causation, right? You, I mean, the fact that Kurt Cobain was on heroin does not account for the music of Nirvana. There's plenty of intervening variables like being a very sad guy or being in an industry that uses a ton of drugs. Or being someone who sat in his bedroom and practiced the guitar for 15 years before you ever had heroin, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, if you can get to a point where you can handicap yourself with drugs and still put out a record, good job, you did it. So in my case, when I started treating my bipolar, what I lost was those periods where I went on just ragged tears. Did you get good work out of that? Well, I mean, I think probably all of the records I made, mm. I made during a manic state because you just galvanize all of the, you put all all of the tools in front of you. And then when you, the, when the mania starts to well up, you're like, now we got to go now. We got to get studio time. We got to do this. You're making it sound like it's more of a, 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 a motivator than it is a, uh, Oh, it, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a motivator because but the songs were already there and yeah. that's just what gets you the, gets you the pep. Yeah. It gives you the pep. You feel, um, w w part of what mania is, is a feeling of grandiosity and a feeling of, um, imperviousness. Mm. So you go into the studio or you go on tour during that period. And that feeling of invulnerability and larger than lifeness is what enables you to get those projects done. Cause you need some of that to do any kind of art, you, you know, just the, just, you have to trick yourself into thinking, although this is nothing now, if I just plow ahead, this is going to be valuable and valid and important and people will like it, which is an insane thing to think about a non-existent project, but you have to have it if you're going to create it. Well, and as an unknown artist to think like, I'm going to stand up on stage and I'm going to captivate people who've never heard of me before. Mm -hmm. That requires that you, that you think. You do need delusions of grandeur. A little bit. To of be an opening act, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and then the, the songwriting can come out of a period of, of depression. I mean, that's when you feel the the feelings most acutely and you feel so that's why so much music made by manic depressive people is so dark so, so bipolar is perfect you need a depressive state to get the songs ready to go and then you're just waiting for the roller coaster to go but when i when i started treating my bipolar disorder i did not feel that my creativity was inhibited um a lot of a lot of what's kept me from producing records over the last ten years is just that I became a middle aged person and I wasn't as traumatized by um, by relationships as I was in my twenties. I didn't. I no longer was like, "Why won't she call me back?" I was like, "Oh, I know why she didn't call me back. <laughs> it's pretty clear why I didn't get that call back." So songwriters are just people that don't have like a supportive friend group to hear the stories. It's why you see a lot of musicians do their best work when they're young. And then as they get older, I mean, nobody's really listening to the Eric Clapton records of the late nineties because there's just, you, you run, I mean, not that Eric Clapton really had anything to say even in the early days, but 
Yeah, you're not changing uh, anymore. The you're, highs aren't so high, the lows aren't so low. Hopefully, you're not hurting as badly. And even if you do have untreated mental illness into late middle age, the hurt is no longer so confusing. You feel just more entrenched in the hurt, but you're no longer like wondering why you can't cope. You're just, ex you're kind of resigned to not being you able to You can kind cope. of do the stolid, resigned Johnny right. Cash right. soldiering through kind of thing. The terrible thing about it is that the mania stops being so inspiring. You don't, you no longer get the highs that you got as a young person. In the case of Wildman Fisher, eventually in the mid 2000s, he had no, he no longer had any income, passive or otherwise. His family started to, the people that, traditionally had cared for him, started to pass away, get sick and die. And his network of rock and roll friends, it was just too much to ask anybody to full-time look after Wildman Fisher, who not only was difficult to care for, but also like aggressive, violent. Yeah, it's got to be a thankless job. And, you know, and, and believed that there were snipers uh, across the street. He eventually agreed to move into an assisted living facility uh, in Van Nuys, California, and finally submitted to being medicated. And for, um, for the last year of his, years of his life, he lived taking medication in, a, in an assisted living facility. And, and watching game shows. Yeah, basically probably was a, a Ken Jennings fan. <laughs> and uh, in his description, lost his pep. And, um, he said he, no, oh, he did, he said he did lose his, he, pep. he lost the medication caused him to lose his pep. And so he lived out the rest of his life uneventfully. And in, um, I mean, in that position, you're the last one to know if what you need is pep or not, you know, that's the thing. Like you want those people to have the autonomy to choose pep or not, but they might not be making the right choice for themselves. Once again, it's very confusing. It are the last seven years of his life where he had a roof over his head and three squares a day, um, and was medicated and presumably had a s small circle of people in his assisted living facility who were his he associates. Could do jigsaw puzzles with? He no longer was pulled on stage at big rock shows and given 30 minutes to perform his music. Um, no one ever probably there told him he was bigger than the Beatles, which people used to do, you know, like he would take, he would take the stage and the audience would scream like, yeah, you're bigger than the Beatles. Did the audience all just scream that in unison? You're bigger than the Beatles. It was part of the part of being a fan of Wildman Fisher that you knew that's what he wanted to hear. I see. And yet you feel like that's extremely troubling that that his audience I mean, who who's in on the joke and who's not here? Uh but so Wildman Fisher died at the age of sixty-six. Um no longer a wild man. No longer a wild man. Rhino Records became uh, one of the, ma I mean, a, a major force in the entertainment business, re-releasing like, all the great records of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That almost seems like that's his great legacy right there. <laughs> they ended up being bought by Warner Brothers and became a massive, like, hundred millions of dollars, uh, like, entertainment property. Somebody else got rich off of his suffering again. Uh, and... You know, Zappa, Zappa died, left the control of his estate to his wife, Gail, who continued to refuse to release the Wildman Fisher album. And then when Gail died, she put all of Frank's copyrights into a trust 
because apparently the four Zappa children have within the family a rift where two of the Zappa children are allied against the other two Zappa children. I wonder how it goes. Dweezil and... Moon. Oh, really? Versus? I've actually met Moon, and uh, we did a show together, and I I really liked her. Super uh, personable and talented person. But when we did the show, I was, you know, backstage, I was, I almost said to her, but I was really thinking, like, please don't tell a story about how your moon unit Zappa, like you're, you're so smart and you're going to, you're, this is a storytelling show. You're going to get up and tell a story. Please, 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 please. Don't feel about your family. Please don't tell a story about, about being a moon unit Zappa. And she got up and told a moon unit Zappa story. And I mean, of course, right. You can't, you can't like throw away your best material. All my best stories have game shows in them. And that concludes wild man Fisher entry 472.GE1612 Certificate number 49895 in the Omnibus. Speaking of outsider art forms that everyone thinks they can attempt, uh, Futurelings, we hope that social media does not exist in your time. That's where everybody feels like they're a star. We hope all the YouTubers die first in whatever the cataclysm is. But in our day, we were so committed to the ideals of the Omnibus Project that John and I spent considerable time uh, diffusing our goals on social media at Omnibus Project. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John was at John Roderick, three syllables, on both Twitter and Instagram. There was a fan group on Facebook called The Futurelings, where people were happy to congregate if John let them in. That's right. We uh, he, ad- he administers with an iron hand. We now, uh, Ken and I, have taken over briefly the moderation of our Facebook page while we... Um, Audition. We control the keys. Moderators. So yeah, you'd better, There, we, we've changed the questions to get into the group. You'd better answer those questions. The questions are now your checking account number, your mother's maiden name, and last four digits of your social. <laughs> and if you answer those correctly, we will let you be in the future Lings chat group. Uh, people emailed us in our era at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. They could even send us physical artifacts if they so desired. Postcards, uh, prizes, anthrax of all kinds at uh, Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744. Did you say anthrax of all kinds? Yeah, I think I think of all kinds modified my entire list, though. Do you Are you saying that there are multiple kinds of anthrax? I think what I should have said was postcards, prizes, anthrax, things of all kinds. I see. Is that uh, better? Yeah, yeah, okay. That, that but if people wanted to send us new and uh, novel and antibiotic-resistant strains of anthrax... Sure. Please do it in a sealed container. Don't just sprinkle it in an envelope. And put a, and definitely right on the outside of the envelope contains anthrax. Yeah. So we know to open it carefully. Don't, don't send us a letter that says, try and chew on this anthrax. It will boost your immune system. And also on the other stuff you send us, don't put does not contain anthrax. <laughs> because the Postal Service might not be amused. No, that's like saying to somebody at TSA, I don't have a bomb in my shoe. Which should be the number one thing you want to tell them. Yeah. I just wanted you guys to know I do not have a, a bomb or weapon. Here's the thing. You imply you don't have a bomb in your shoe by being perfectly happy to take your shoes off and put them on the conveyor belt if they ask. But you just tell someone outright and everybody hey, look, loses their mind. I don't need to take my shoes off. I don't have a bomb in my shoe. Then you're going to shut the airport down. I did not spend all week making a bomb and putting it in my shoe, just right. so you know. Right. 
it wouldn't be that hard to put a bomb in your shoe. It's not like shoe bombs are super difficult to construct. And you should say that too. You should say it wouldn't be hard. It's super easy. I could have done it. Yeah. I just want you guys to know that I didn't. You, you should definitely not say, have you ever seen the show? Have you ever seen the, the television episode about uh, an altitude triggered bomb written by Rod Serling? It actually inspired a lot of copycat bombings, including one that, that where a plausible bomb was involved. I might try that just to see if it's somebody who listens to the show. Maybe you could go to the airport on a day you don't have to fly and just do that as a way to entertain yourself for the afternoon. Just chill. You couldn't get to the actual TSA gates, but you could hang out with the other personnel, the ones that check and see if you have pre or can go in the first class line. Oh, and you could like talk to them. Because they want to see your ticket now before they even let you in the line, don't they? Yeah, you can't even get in the line now. You can't even chill with TSA people anymore. Yeah, that's weird. Did I even finish saying the address? I think I didn't. Uh, I'm not sure. Omnibus Project, uh, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea what the definition of mental illness is in your time. It could be that all life forms have a shared intelligence, so you all have the same troubles, the same capacities. You feel emotions across the whole breadth of your mutual So sensors. everyone's slightly aneurotypical to the same degree. I mean, if you think about a sentient aspen, if one tree, if one, what we think of as a singular aspen, gets cut down at the edge of the organism, do, do, does not the furthest aspen also feel the, the pain? I don't know. I, maybe they don't. It's just like clipping your toenails. Whoa. That is pretty problematic to say that felling an aspen would feel like just a toenail clipping to the rest of the organism. Why? I don't know. It feels more like you would cut off a finger. Oh, yeah, I guess. Well, how many? I don't know. I mean, every, every, uh, every I guess lost, toenail is more like bark. Yeah. Bark off every la lost aspen must resonate through the whole community like as a, a lost friend. Ask not for who the bell tolls. Or who the chainsaw tolls. It tolls <laughs> for thee. It tolls for thee. Um, we don't know how long our civilization survived or whether or not you will even regard what we have built here as a civilization. Uh, but we hope and pray that this catastrophe, this world cleansing giant wave, this rising sea, this Spanish flu may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. These recordings, which are controlled by the estate of Frank Zappa, may only be released on the Rhino Records of your time. What a mistake that was to put the, to put the Zappa estate in charge of our... Because uh, you were saying, let's just bury it on the moon. Right. And I was like, no, let's just give it to the Frank Zappa children oh, to, who, to administer. Who will administer our, our recordings better than the Zappas? And I think I was it was like, a genius move. I was like, I love Moon Unit. And you were like, oh, I don't know. She's on the wrong side of the business end of this relationship. <laughs> uh, if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.